SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Has there been any use of recreational drugs in your family? What? Or any history of mental disturbance? What are you asking? Please, don't take it wrong. If there was, there's a good chance Dylan could be suffering from something passed down to him. Have you been suffering from any delusional events, Miss Langenkamp? After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. Hello and welcome to Sequelcast 2, a podcast looking at films in a franchise, one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. And I'm Thrasher. And this time around, we're continuing our look at the Nightmare on Elm Street series with a very interesting entry, I should have pulled up Wikipedia, I'm doing that right now, called Wes Craven's A New Nightmare. Yes, there's a chill in the air, the scent of uh, scent of eggnog and uh, wrapping paper, and that can only mean one thing, Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, I mean, this is quite um, interesting how, how this one came about, because you, we had done uh, Freddy's Nightmare, which came out in 91, that was the sixth film in the series, and then Wes Craven was, um, he had some ideas for it, you know, he originally had an idea... Uh, for the Nightmare on Elm Street 3 that didn't quite get used that involved, uh, I think one of them was like Freddy coming to the real world to some respect. Um, and, and he was wanting to do something different, so he came up with this concept for New Nightmare uh, that's quite postmodern and in, in a lot of ways sort of presaged uh, what he would do later in the, the Scream series, right? Yes, it's, it's really it really is fascinating because this this is an unusual... Uh, this is unusual for a Nightmare on Elm Street film because it honors the fact that Freddy was finally defeated once and for all. Like, this is the only Nightmare on Elm Street film that honors Freddy's, I, I guess for lack of a better term, canonical death in a previous film. And it also but, takes kind of the, the hoary old trope of what if the movie monsters were in the real world? But does it pretty well, and I think that is in part because it's a little bit meta and a little bit postmodern, but certainly not as on the nose as Scream would be. Yeah, there's even a bit of kind, I would almost say, this, uh, especially at the beginning, some of it's almost kind of like a mockumentary, um, where you have characters playing themselves and um, kind of poking fun at themselves a bit. And uh, it, well, this, yeah, and, and, and this was like a rare horror movie that actually got good reviews. Well, I think I think it helps because it, it is good performance. I think the the, the metafictional stuff that's in this movie does make it a bit more tolerable. It's it does something that that is unusual in that in in all of the previous films, when there is any humor, it universally comes from Freddy Krueger himself and him being this murdering Bugs Bunny figure. But in this yeah, movie. Freddy goes right back to only being a monster, only being terrifying. He never makes any jokes. 
And in fact, no character really makes any jokes in this film, but throughout the movie, things are put into into humorous context, and the humor is only deepened if you've been watching these movies from the beginning. Correct, and I, I do like how it leans more into the darker kind of surrealism that you saw in the original film, and to some extent, Elm Street 5, the dream job. Um, let, let's go through the stats. This came out in 94, directed by Wes Craven, produced by Marianne Maddalena, Written by Wes Craven, based on characters created by Russ Craven, starring Robert England, Heather Lenkamp, Miko Hughes, David Newsom, and John Saxon, with a score by J. Peter Robinson, and cinematography by Mark Irwin, edited by Patrick Lucier. Patrick Lucier, uh, certainly Lucier, ended up, you know, directing a lot of um, films himself, including the trilogy of Dracula 2000. Oh, wow. And That's actually something I wouldn't mind tackling, if only because I've only seen the first one. I'd like an excuse to see the other two. Right, we have that in our library. And um, he also directed a Nicolas Cage film I really enjoyed called Drive Angry, hmm. which is a real sort of um, kind of camp feature with a kind of rote story, but that describes most of Nicolas Cage's career. I'm going on a tangent here, so we should stick to the show. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the first time I saw was Craven's New Nightmare, and it must have been on, on TNT or something, because it would play this one on TV, and I would never quite catch it from the beginning. It wasn't until I had, um, I, I think, one of those DVD box sets, or maybe I worked at a blockbuster video and I had access to the movie for free that I actually sat down and watched it. But it's it's one I definitely appreciate more. I think you get more out of it each time you watch it. And I think if you're older, you get a lot more than if you're kind of an impatient teenager. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, that's kind of similar to my experience. Of all the Nightmare on Elm Street films, this is the one that I have seen the most. And it is in large part because it was played late nights almost constantly on uh, TNT and sometimes USA uh, all throughout uh, the second half of the 90s. Hmm. And I think the first time I saw it was probably 95, maybe 96. Yeah, it's um, really quite something. You know, they redesigned Freddy Krueger in this movie. I, and I'm not entirely it thrilled with the redesign. It's one of those strange things where I think the redesign looks good, but what's the point? Uh, yeah, in later interviews, Wes Craven said he's, he regretted redesigning Freddy Krueger for this movie. And why, why don't you describe to the listeners what the redesign is? All right, so classic Freddy Krueger, I mean, as, as the Fresh Prince pointed out, he's burnt up like a weenie. It's just, you know, this... <laughs> Guy, scarred, burned, sort of hamburgery skin. In this movie, which, due to the fact that for the longest time it was the most recent Nightmare on Elm Street film, a lot there's a lot of merchandise using this version of Freddy. Um, but in this version, he doesn't look burned. He just has patches of skin torn off of his torn off of his face and hands, and so you just see muscles and tendons underneath. There's no, they're, they don't even look like chemical burns. Yeah, the original Nightmare on Elm Street um, makeup, which changes a bit through the films if you look carefully, it gets kind of made fun of. People call it pizza face or whatever. But I, I think it's it's very iconic and weathered in this that you see the red patches underneath and also red patches on his hands and stuff. It makes it look 
cheap somehow. Yeah, it, you know, it, it almost looks like what another studio would come up with for their Freddy ripoff character. Oh, we can't do burning. They already did burning. I don't know. Peel the skin off. That's it, Charlie. Oh wait, what's that? I, I think we're, we're we're getting a call from her pal Shecky Spielboy. Oh hey, Shecky, we're gonna put you through on the lo- on live. How you doing, Shecky? <laughs> Hello, how you doing, Thrasher? I, I heard you talking about the West Craven's new nightmare, and I did a film that is fantastic uh, around that time, trying to capitalize on its success. Oh, what was your film called? I just called it New Nightmare because I could. It wasn't the same as Wes Craven's New Nightmare, but mine was about a scary horse. Really? And, and what did this horse look like? Could you describe the way you made this this horse an icon of horror? I went to the dumpster and I saw a, uh, a rocking horse. I took it from there. And the what you see is what you get. It's kind of chipped. It's a wood grain and is this is this a rocking horse that attacks people in dreams? Did did you lift that uh, from Nightmare on Elm Street? Yeah. So what the story was, uh, we have a, a character called Wes Maven, and he's trying to do a movie about his famous uh, horses called Nightmare. And uh, he says, "I'm gonna make a new Nightmare," and that's when we launch into the thirty-minute credit sequence. It, it, that's a tip for your filmmaking kids: have a very long credit sequence. That way, well, you don't have to film as much of the actual movie. But but Shecky, like I I know the kind of production staffs you worked with. Uh, how did you get enough names to fill out thirty minutes of credits? That's the thing. They're all uh, how do the French say nom de plumes? So they're all like Shecky Spielberg, Shecky E Spielberg, Shex Spielboig. That's right. In fact, uh, I, I also I use the name of like all my pets, my cousins. Without their permission, of course, uh, no one really caught on to it. But we, um, I, and in, in fact, the tagline on the poster, you, you see this beat up uh, rocking horse, who, whose name is also Nightmare, and uh, it says a horse is a horse, of course, of course. So, so you're really counting on people to get hooked by that question mark. I think that exactly right, and that that you could tell uh, my I, my question mark is a. Tantamount to your uh, uh, skills in uh, reviewing film. So when I was doing the the West Cra- uh, uh, Shecky Spielboy's Nightmare, or it's actually called Nightmare. How am I so stupid? So uh, the plot is uh, the main character, West Maven. He he's uh, taking a bath and he says, "Oh, I have such a filmography." And then as he talks about his films, you cut to uh, clips from all my old movies. And in the middle, I just cut close-ups of this horse. With a scary sound effect, and uh, it's it's really quite something. Let me tell you. Well, you did all the foley for the horse, which is why a lot of people thought it was like a weasel or something. That's that's that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, a weasel horse. In fact, uh, some people said, "Why don't you get a rocking weasel instead?" But, but then it was too late. I mean, this is really like a clip show uh, movie, uh, if you will, and at the end. West, uh, this this ain't much of a spoiler because uh, I, I had to destroy the film after Wes Craven and uh, the Weinstein's offered a cease and desist from Miramax. I, uh, the Wes Maven wakes up from his nightmare, which you've seen clips of all my lovely films, and uh, he says it was a dream. And then on the other end of the bed, the horse head pops up, 
and says, Oh, was it? So it teased a sequel, but uh, we were never able to make one. Well, I mean, Nightmare is already pretty uh, metafictional. What would you have done for the sequel? What was the plan? You know, I have not thought about new uh, my, my Nightmare in such a time, but I think I would call it Nightmare Rides Again. And I would use clips from uh, my other new my other movies, and uh, the the differences West Maven would um, be trying to reconcile with his estranged uh, daughter Petunia Maven. But then it would have like some sort of message at the end, like "Don't tinkle in the ocean." I uh, nothing so profound, nothing so profound as "Don't tinkle in the ocean," but I think the message would be. Uh, uh, if your daughter, if your kid tells you to buy her a vanilla ice cream, make sure and buy her chocolate. You really need to broaden their horizons. Well, to be fair, chocolate has got to be the number one most popular ice cream flavor in the world. Uh, you know, I, I read a study in this, and it changes uh, from the country. In fact, in uh, in, in Ukraine, the most uh, famous uh, ice cream flavor is uh, cabbage. Really? Cabbages being the sweetest uh, food stuff available? Yes, and it has a bit of fiber, and it's sort of like a meal in a cone. But they, they can't afford the cone in the Ukraine, so uh, you, you, they just sort of serve the ice cream scoop in your hand, and you got to eat it really quick. That explains all the promotional uh, material you kept sending me for Spielboig's meal cones. Meal cones, uh, of course. So, yeah, one of the times I even sent you some of the cabbage ice cream but I forgot to put it in a insulated box, so you just got a wet box of goop there that smelled like rotten cabbage. Which is completely different from the wet box of goop you can get from goop, which I hear that they're suing you as well. Uh, yeah, it turns out if you, uh, you try to make a product called Shecky's Goop, everyone gets offended one way or another. But, oh, what's, I, I gotta go uh, make myself my breakfast of um, egg cabbage surprise, so... Uh, you get on with your show, but uh, this has been very. Any last questions about my uh, my film uh, Shecky Spielboig's uh, Nightmare? Uh, no, but I am wondering what you have in development right now. I mean, I know Avengers Endgame is coming out. Are you doing anything to capitalize on that? Ah, uh, yeah, you're such a good interviewer. What a good question. Yeah, yeah. So my, I, I have my own. Uh, I call it the S M U Shecky. Cinematic universe, Shecky movie universe, movie universe. Very, very good. Yes, and uh, what we're doing here is it. Uh, it's they all the characters are different chess pieces. See, and so you had a movie about the knight, a movie about the rock, a movie about his evil twin, the castle, and so <laughs> forth. They all on each side. And this last one, Endgame, it's based on a, a famous chess endgame of a uh, Bobby Fischer and uh, the Russian computer Bleeplorp. <laughs> and the whole thing is set to One Night in Bangkok from chess, isn't it? Correct, but it's played on a timpani. Oh, nice. That's going to be an, an interesting sound. I mean, that's the one thing we can say about all your films, Shecky. They are interesting. And of course, no one ever says interesting unless they really love something. All right, well, talk to you later. <laughs> See you, Shecky. Thank you, Shecky. That was fantastic. So, uh, Shecky Spielboig, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, he, hasn't, he hasn't been on the show in a while. I don't know what, what's really happened to him. It sounds like his voice has even changed a bit. So, I'll have to... <laughs> It's all the cigars and the brandy. Yeah, I think so. You know, um, 
it would be it wouldn't it be nice to do an episode of Sequel Cast Two that that is a clip show that's just like Shecky Spielboig. <laughs> the best of Spielboig. <laughs> the best of Spielboig. And then also there's um, but, but I don't think there's been enough segments. I would also like to do it with the BBC stuff, but I don't think we've done enough of those. Oh, the so. sequentially speaking. Oh, well, of course we could fill it out by doing a best of Slimer. Remember when he used to be on the show all the time? <laughs> yes. But I mean that's maybe five minutes worth of clips. But yeah, uh, <laughs> we play them twice. Then you get ten minutes. I guess in Shecky Spielberg style, we can play it like fifty times and start <laughs> maddening. Um... So, but that's but that's our nightmare. We're here to talk about the new nightmare. Yeah. Um, so one thing that that Wes Craven did on the script, and he got permission from Heather Lakenham. She might even be a producer in the film, I believe, because um, she was really involved in letting parts of her life um, inform the script. In real life, she is married to a special effects person. And in the film, at the beginning, you know, she's playing herself, and she has a husband, Chase, played by David Newsom. And uh, he's working on a new Nightmare on Elm Street series. And th- this really neat kind of robotic take on the claws comes to life and kills some of the workers on set. And I, I think it's a really effective moment. Yeah, it's it's really neat. Like I do, I do love the look of the mechanical Freddy Krueger hand because, like it, it looks like an unfinished special effect. Like it looks like they built an animatronic, but haven't put any latex or, or anything on it to make it look like a real fleshy hand. And you get some really neat shots of this this robotic mechanical Freddy Krueger hand with all the blades, which is which is pretty cool because it keeps. The iconic image of the Kruger blades, but beco- but becomes its own thing throughout the movie, and I think that is a more successful redesign than the actual Freddy redesign. It should be noted in uh, Heather Langenkamp's real life um, second husband, David Leroy Anderson, uh, has won two Academy Awards for Best Makeup: one for the Eddie Murphy Nutty Professor, and the other for Men in Black. So he's a he's a um, right hand man of Rick Baker. Oh wow! Yeah, and act- and um, that's one thing that I do kind of wish we got. I wish I we got a better sense of what the movie within the movie was about. That's true. Yeah, uh, especially really since know, Heather but... Lagenkamp is is in it, despite the fact that I believe her character is dead in the other movies. God, no, I think you're right, yeah, because uh, she, she transfers her soul to someone else or her, her Freddy fighting abilities to... Or is there some sort of, like, notion that it's a twin or something? Secret twin, yeah. I mean, that um, would be fun if they just made fun of all the most hack horror movie sequel premises. Right, or, or you'd have something where, like, the, uh, the claws... It's something like, you know, the blood of um, Wes Craven spills in the claws and they get <laughs> powers to become a good director. I don't know. It, <laughs> a, a sentient hand starts directing films in Hollywood and becomes famous. <laughs> <laughs> a hand is born. <laughs> but, uh, digit or, by or, digit. <laughs> or, uh, yeah, digit goes time. Hollywood. <laughs> digit. Or the Spielboig version hand jobs. Uh... You know, Shecky Spielberg did did do a, a a film, a takeoff on a Neil Simon play, and, and his version was called Hand Jobs in the Park. So, <laughs> oh my god! All right. So <laughs> about, about this movie, th- this is this is uh, this is really interesting. The number of diversions we're having because I do like this movie. 
Yes, and it, it's harder to talk about a good movie than a bad movie, I think. Um, but what's, um, you know, so parts of the story remind me a bit of, like, uh, The Omen or The Shining, where it's about her son and uh, um, Dylan, played by Michael Hughes, and he's, you know, they're trying to, Freddie wants to possess him in the real world. And, you know, and you have stuff that, like, a little kid does creepy or weird things that aren't completely explained. Yeah, he um, has, like, an imaginary friend which bears a weird resemblance to Freddy Krueger. Freddy keeps appearing in his dreams. Uh, he he keeps sleepwalking and wandering away into these into these weird uh, situations. So, yeah, the stuff the stuff with the kid is is pretty creepy. And I, I will say that's another kind of daring thing. In all the previous films, Freddy goes after teenagers. Teenagers. Uh, this oh. is the, the only movie where Freddy goes after a preteen who presumably is more the age of the children that Freddy Krueger killed in the in in his backstory. Well, and furthermore, you could argue that um in a way Dylan can be sort of like the audience where maybe a, a little kid, you know, saw the first Elm Street movie and they grew up with the movies and now they're old enough to have a kid of their own. Uh yeah, it, it's an interesting choice. Um what I some of the material I really like in the film is you have like uh these kind of behind-the-scenes Hollywood, I sort of described it as like pseudo-mockumentary moments where, you know, Bob Shays himself, the, the founder of uh, New Line Cinema, and, you know, Wes Craven is there and talking to, uh, and you have a really memorable scene with um, Robert England as himself, as Freddy Krueger on a talk show. Oh, everyone, I love yeah. I love that scene. That is my favorite scene in this movie. Yeah, because Heather Lagenkamp is on a talk show promoting her upcoming nightmare film. And also, I think, like a book that she's written about her experience in Hollywood. Okay, now we have a special reunion. We've got a friend from your past. And Robert Englund comes in dressed in the Freddy Krueger makeup. And this is after, I believe, uh, Heather has had a small handful of Freddy Krueger based hallucinations. So she's really freaked out when he first steps out on stage before she realizes that it's Robert Englund. And we do get to see him in and out of makeup, which is pretty damn cool. But what I love the most, when he comes out in the Kruger makeup, they play the Nightmare on Elm Street theme, except that it's arranged like the Tonight Show theme song. Oh, I didn't pick up on that. That's great. It is such a great gag. And who's, who's the host of the show, do you recall? Oh, crud. I don't remember. I feel... Okay. I feel like it's it wasn't a real talk show. I feel like it was something right. I made up for the yeah. movie. Um, that, that sounds about right. No, I don't recall the I don't recall the name of the talk show. It's just probably just like a you know just some sort of generic Hollywood Today type show. So um, a tragedy befalls Heather Lankenkamp's family as her husband sleeps at the wheel and is found dead with like a slash from the claw on him. And meanwhile, you know, Dylan starts getting uh, sicker and kind of there's all sorts of weird stuff going on. And Heather's life is rapidly collapsing around her. And, and you also have uh, earthquakes going on. Oh, yeah, that's another thing because, you know, earthquakes in Los Angeles were becoming a bigger and bigger news story at the time. So I like that they tap into that uh, to that that particular uh, that particular thread there. Um, and and. This is also when we when uh, Wes Craven gets introduced, and Wes Craven kind of spells out the entire premise of the movie, which I think is is actually kind of like kind of sweet. Like he 
he fills the the sort of sagely old man role that you get in a lot of uh, huh. a lot of slasher movies, like Donald Pleasance in the Nightmare. I'm sorry, in the uh, Halloween uh, films, where where it's it's sort of sort of spelled out that there is like this this demon, this spirit of fear that wants nothing more than to stalk the world and and do horrible things to people. But to every generation, there's sort of a shaman that contains it by concocting a horror story that he can tell people that kind of helps them deal with their fear and that keeps the demon imprisoned. But you can't be scared by the same thing forever. So eventually the story loses its power and the demon can escape unless someone can give that demon a new form. And Wes Craven was the previous shaman. Uh, he was having he was being attacked by this demon, and he sort of created Freddy Krueger to help deal with it within the context of this movie. And that's what kept the spirit in prison for a generation. But now that Freddy's become an object of fun with a lot of increasingly silly sequels, the demon can escape again. And that this new Nightmare movie is Wes Craven's last gasp of trying to keep the demon contained as Freddy Krueger to buy time for whoever's going to be the next, you know, quote-unquote shaman who's going who's gonna to come up with a new form. It is cool how Wes Craven plays himself. You know, he could have had an actor, and even though Wes Craven's performance is a bit stiff, it's sort of charmingly so, like... The, the way he does his lines is not so different than how he comes off in an interview on a DVD or something. Well, he, it's because, like, he he's not an actor, so he doesn't act like an actor. So he's yeah. a little bit stiff, uh, a little bit bland. Uh, he's he's also very matter-of-fact about everything. I mean, there's, no, there's yeah. no grand reveal. There's no prophecy. He just kind of spells out, this is the premise, as if he was an artist explaining his own work. It Which adds is exactly to the realism. what he is. Yeah, it adds to the realism of the show, his sort of stiffness. And, and Bob Shea isn't very good at, in his part either, but it, it, it is what it is. I think it works perfectly fine. But because they're playing themselves, I think they can kind of get away with it. It's um, The point I'm trying to make is it's not as gobsmackingly awful as like M. Night Shyamalan's kind of horrific cameos in some of his films where he tries to give himself a juicy part. Oh, as the like as the doctor, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I think, but I think it works because I mean, everybody, just about everybody is playing themselves. I think everyone except uh, except Johnny Depp, which, as I understand it, the plan was to have Johnny Depp play himself in the movie. Uh, Ooh. Huh. But uh, he ended up uh, turning it. Oh no! But it's not that he that Johnny Depp turned it down. It's that. Wes Craven thought Johnny Depp was too big to do it and just never bothered asking. And that's ironic because um, Johnny Depp had... At the time, he still was in a lot of just like artsy films, the Pirate of the Caribbean films, which we happen to start talking about next week here in Sequel Cast 2. That had not happened yet. You know, he was still... He was not an A-list movie star is the point I'm trying to make. Well, you know, this would have been... Well, it's not that he's A-list, but he's like sort of... At the time, was sort of almost exclusively doing high art and experimental projects. Correct. I think the biggest yep. thing he had been in at this point would have been Ed Wood. Uh, yeah, and then uh, a few years before that, he was in that that film with him and Marlon Brando. That was like a um, OG. Uh, I, I can't the, the name of that one escapes me right now. But yeah, so he he was you know getting some awards for doing different roles, and yeah, he, I, 
I don't know why I've, I have forgotten his Tim Burton kick because it's been so long since he did a Tim Burton film, I guess. Oh, Don Juan DeMarco. That's the movie. That, yeah, Don Juan DeMarco. That's it. I knew it was loosely based off a piece of classic literature. Two Don legendary Don... assholes on screen. <laughs> uh, yes, and I uh, implore our listeners, if they like stories about people being an asshole, pick up a, uh, a memoir or biography of Marlon Brando and you will not be disappointed. Oh my gosh, yeah, and uh, Film Facts, they had an interview with one of the producers of the Christopher Reeve Superman films, and oh, yeah. there's a whole lengthy diversion about the weird hoops they had to jump through to get Marlon Brando involved as Jor-El. Uh, and, and one of um, Brando's last films was a movie directed by Frank Oz called, I think The Score, maybe? Um, and on set, he would only refer to director Frank Oz as Miss Piggy. Oh my only, God. And he would only take direction from Robert De Niro, who was one of the actors on the set. So, yeah. That's... That sounds very, very Brando. Mm-hmm. Um, it's too bad Brando isn't in this film. I think Brando in a Nightmare on Elm Street film could really be something. <laughs> I will do your movie, but the part of Freddy Krueger must be played by my good friend Ben Gazzara. That almost sounds like um, John Cazale, the guy that played Fredo. Huh. I was trying to say Ben Gazzara, but the, the, my impression of of uh, Maurice LaMarche's impression of Marlon Brando is pretty pretty bad. Yeah, mine isn't much better. It's like, we've got a dual thing where he's around like this. Could have been Governor Colleone, Senator Colleone, Nat King Colleone. The, the, uh, fa- the son of my father's wedding. Uh, that, that's not even how the line fucking goes. God damn it. Okay. <laughs> um, All right, so new nightmare. Yeah, a- as they progress to Freddy Krueger's lair, um, this is where I think the film doesn't quite work, because I think they sort of overdo it. Like, it's very like fairy tale inspired the look of it just doesn't quite work for me. But on the other hand, like if you're trying to make, you know, they do make references to legends and myths, and, and they try to be more highfalutin, and so, um, he, you know, you get the feel of like uh, the the story with the Hansel and Gretel and all these sort of things. Like there, there's a lot of allusions, and there you can do, I think, pretty good. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of references as, if you really look in these scenes. But I don't. I think the look of it looks too cartoony for me and that's hard for me to say given this is a nightmare film yeah i think well i think that's it It, it's it's a bit too stylized i think that's one of the strengths of the previous nightmare films is that the environments have been dingy and dirty and scary in the in the way that only a real location can be um yeah this is like overdressed like this movie in particular freddy should be the only heightened thing in it Correct. Yeah, I, I'm totally in agreement there. Um, so, um, what else do you feel about? How else do you feel about this film? I mean, I think I think we both agree that we like it, and it does a lot of interesting things, even if it isn't completely successful all the time. Well, I, when I when I see this, I can't help but wonder because I'm sure the studio hoped that this was going to completely revive the franchise. So, if it yeah. had, where could you have gone from here? Because to do 
to do a sequel to this movie just seems wrong. Uh, yeah, I'm looking here. Uh, according to Box Office Mojo, the budget on this was $8 million. It's It's box office. I assume this is domestic box office. was $19.7 million, which is not a great um, return on, on investment. It is, it is so crazy that filmmaking is the only business where getting back more than double what you put in is considered not successful. It's because marketing costs as much, if not more, than the film itself. Which that is a mistake. That needs to be corrected. Uh, I, I, I agree. I'm not. Yeah, I'm on the same page as you there. And uh, also, I mean, the cost of prints and distribution, all of that's lessened with digital projection. But um, that's neither here nor there to this discussion. Um, yeah, it, but yeah, if they were going to do, um, are you trying to transition to the pitch of sequel segment? Well, no, no because uh, I also did want to talk about the uh, the funeral when Heather Lagenkamp's husband sure, when they yeah, do the funeral for him. There's lots of just it's it's great to see so many of these actors from these films show up in in mourning garb. I mean, in a lot of ways, you could view this as them them sort of marking the death of this franchise. I think that's that's an unintended, I presume, unintended uh, sort of symbolism of this particular scene. Uh, and then just you know the the scary coffin imagery that we get a little later, which strangely enough. Coffin nightmare imagery, which is a very primal nightmare. I know I've had the nightmare of being trapped in a coffin many, many times. Sure. I may be having it right now, for all you know. But but it's taken six films to actually get it on screen in Nightmare on Elm Street. That's quite surprising, especially yeah, when you figure how much of the coffin imagery is central to uh, the early universal horror films, like The Mummy or Dracula or, or what have you. Um uh, yeah, that's a good point, and I think part of what part of that is a reference to when the the previous uh, Nightmare film, Freddy's Dead: The Final Nightmare, came out. They, for publicity, they did actually do a funeral service for Freddy Krueger that a lot of the staff actually showed up at. <laughs> so, and, and you know, the snake is eating its own tail yet again. But yeah, I agree. Seeing those cameos is nice. There's a nice sort of spookiness to that sequence, and. Um, yeah, overall, I, I like this film. I don't love it. I'll, I'll give it a sequel, yes. I don't think it's uh, it's not my favorite in, in the series, but I appreciate it's ambitious. And I wish it would have... Uh, it would have gelled a bit more at the end. I feel like the, the ending, it kind of falls apart and becomes kind of standard. Well, it's just, you know, Freddy, Freddy gets defeated because somebody won't be afraid of him, and then that's kind yeah. of... Right, and you've seen that like seven times already. On the other hand, like it's although given his origin, what else can you do? Although the imagery of like Freddy's claw appearing in the bed and like moving around under the sheets and covers, that is terrifying. Yeah, that's, that's a so good image cool. to end on. And and it um, brings to mind a little bit of you know one of the famous deaths in the first film was uh, Johnny Depp on the bed. So yeah, I would I would give it a sequel, yes, as well. I have no idea where they would have gone with this other than. Just going back, to, I, I suspect if a sequel had been made, it probably, not to say it would ignore this movie, but it would go back and it would just be about Freddy attacking kids and nightmares. It would it would just, it would be as if the previous series of films just continued. Right. Um, which brings us to... Pitch, pitch a sequel. Uh, yeah, I, I had something in mind, and, and I think your question was a good one, which is given the, the meta nature of make, nature of this, how would, how would you uh, do it? Instead of a prequel, I think I would do, or a sequel, I would do a prequel about the making of the original Nightmare on Elm Street film, 
and about how the the dream demon starts to um, manifest itself to Wes Craven, both as he's writing the script and sort of more and more uh, infecting the other cast members uh, as the film is shot. Huh. And so, like, the idea is they, they have to finish the film because finishing the film and getting it seen by an audience is the only thing that'll seal Freddy away? Uh, right, and you start having, like, like, crew members and stuff. Maybe, like, a main cast member dies and they have to recast it. And uh, Oh, and man, that... That would be great. I can already see, I can imagine a climax where Wes Craven or somebody is rushing the completed cut of the film to the premiere while being dogged by hallucinations and Freddy Krueger and nightmare imagery and whatnot to get the movie seen. Like, that would be the climax, would be getting that projector to start and the audience cheering as they see the opening shot of Nightmare on Elm Street on the big screen. Maybe as the film is moving through the projector, it starts to like, set on fire and they have to do something to, to, to snuff it out. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I would just call it Wes Craven's first nightmare. Huh, cool. Uh, I would do uh, I would do Nightmare on Elm Street, the final cut. And so my premise, uh, it would be the movie that that was being made uh, during New Nightmare. Uh, but it would get even more, uh, even more meta because it would essentially be a movie about the old type of slasher film represented by Freddy Krueger versus the new kind of slasher film represented by by Scream and 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 later slashers of the late '90s era. And so, what makes this work is that this new figure has shown up terrorizing kids in dreams, and it is just kind of like a masked slasher. It's a little bit Ghostface, uh, a little bit Michael Myers, a little bit uh, Jason Voorhees, uh, what have you. But what ends up happening is these two figures do battle. It is essentially, it's the Dream Demon's previous form, Freddy Krueger, doing battle with his new form, sort of to see which form he will finally take. And it and the children are caught in the middle. So whenever a child starts having a nightmare, in fact, this will be a recurring theme, whenever a child starts having a nightmare and is being menaced by one of these two characters, the other character will show up, and at first, the th- oh, good, these two monsters will fight, and it will save me. No, it only makes things worse, and a lot of kids end up dying as collateral damage. But this is what's going to be great, though. Because it's a slasher, slashers don't attack you in dreams. The slasher is a real serial killer killing people in the waking world. So you're not safe in either world. I like that, it's, yeah. it's just that when the killer dreams, he still has to deal with Freddy because the killer is also an Elm, uh, one of the Elm Street children. And in fact, he thinks that by becoming a bigger monster than Freddy is the only way Freddy can be defeated. Uh, and so that's going to be the great, uh, that's going to be the big, the big climax of the movie. And I kind of don't, I, I don't want there to be a, a standard victory or defeat for Freddy Krueger. Cause I think that's boring and we've seen him defeated so many times and still come back. So it's going to be a real lady in the tiger ending, uh, that the short version is the killer is going to turn out to be the last Elm street child alive. And it's going to be them entering this arena populated in, in the stands of the arena are all the people Freddy has killed. And it's going to be this, like, it's going to end kind of like, kind of like uh, Rocky three. It's going to end with them charging at each other for a very personal fight. But then we cut to credits. I think that would be more powerful. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Very, uh, very neat idea you have there. 
So I got a question for you, Matt. What could it possibly be? Cut or uncut? No, I'm kidding. Uh, what you watching? Okay, answer to the first question is cut, but not as much as some people. And second, I have been watching a, a documentary on Hulu called um, Perfect Bid. And it's about um, the Price is Right game show, specifically how a fella um, who grew up being such a fan of the show, he programmed the, his own version of it in QBasic, that uh -huh. he, he was obsessed with um, keeping down a massive list in Excel of every item and its retail price uh, episode by episode with every possible stat of the item imaginable. And he, he realized that the show reuses a lot of the same prizes with the same prices. And so he um, is able to guess with pretty good accuracy this kind of stuff. And in the he even was a contestant on the show one time. Uh, but he uh, they in uh, have you seen Prices Right? Not recently, but okay. I, I did watch a lot of the show growing up. I did watch uh, yeah, when, Ju when Drew Carey took over the show. I got I back see. into it for a while. Okay, this, this is just strictly about the the Bob Barker era, but. Um, mm. Oh, no, that's not entirely true, because... Of, okay, anyway. Um, in the audience, when you have to guess the, the price, often uh, the audience will shout out answers, right? And, and and this guy the documentary's about is known as someone who will shout out the right, if not, you know, the exact close to it amount. Hmm. And, and when he did one of Drew, Drew Carey's shows, they suspected him of... Um, having an inside connection or being a cheat and he, he was interrogated for several hours by the prices right staff wow uh only to i guess their conclusion was it was the fault of the show for reusing so much of the same items and so they swore we'll never get in this situation again but this guy was kind of an idiot an idiot savant with numbers and he's a math teacher i mean he's a bright guy but that you would know everything down to the penny i could not imagine having that memory Oh, that is really cool. It, it is fascinating the, the way sort of people have used science and data on those uh, on those game shows. Like the guy who discovered uh, on Pressure Luck, the guy who discovered that there was a pattern to the whammies. Uh, and yeah. when he got on the show, he was able to, when they did the whole, this is really weird to explain, but there was like a stack of, like five, a five by five stack of TV screens that would flash randomly, and you'd hit a buzzer to make it stop. And if it landed on this cartoon character called the Whammy, you lost all your money. But if it landed anywhere else, you might get more money. And so he he figured out how to always hit that button in such a way that you always got the maximum amount of uh, bonus money. Something and that was thought to be impossible, and then yeah. later they had to redesign the way that part of the show worked so <laughs> that it was more truly random and nobody could do that again. <laughs> That's pretty crazy, yeah. Um, but yeah, so anyway, that documentary is called The Perfect Bid. Um, I, I watched it on Hulu. You might be able to get it elsewhere. And uh, I recommend it. It's a little bit dry, but I found it interesting enough to see how this... Uh, you know, man's obsession with the show and it ended up with him being interrogated and accused of a crime. So, what have you been watching? 
Cool. Uh, well, uh, being being as you know, we just came out of the Thanksgiving season. I watched. Uh, the Gauntlet, uh, or the, the the new Turkey Day package of Mystery Science Theater 3000 episodes that were released onto Netflix uh, just in time for the holiday. And, and this, so it's a shorter season, right? Yeah, I, th- I believe it is the first half of the second season. I see. Uh, and so, and but it's all sort of self-contained. There's even, for the first time since, like, 97, there's, like, a plot arc uh, going hmm. going through this collection of six episodes, but what's fascinating about this particular collection of episodes uh, is that I have already seen most of these movies before before they got to Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Right, the the one yeah over break I watched one of these as well. I saw um, Mac and Me. Oh, Mac and Me, yeah, which uh, Conan O'Brien made infamous. Whenever Paul Rudd is on the show, they he plays the clip of the kid in the wheelchair falling off the cliff. Yeah, and and that's something like having revisited Mac and Me through this episode, it does it does make it does like strike it does strike me that Mac Mac and Me is a, is an awful movie in virtually every way, and yet they did make some bold choices, like particularly having the having the the protagonist be uh, a kid uh, who uses a wheelchair and him not needing the wheelchair anymore is not part of the narrative like that that's something that you just don't see and he played uh, with a kid that and it was played by a kid who was actually um wheelchair bound yeah and and like that like I I, I can really applaud it for that. That's something I appreciate. It's just a shame that that's something that they did in a movie that is horrible in all other ways. Yeah, Shout Factory recently came out with a special edition of Mac and Me um, on DVD and Blu-ray. And also, uh, I dropped something pop up in my news feed uh, lately where uh, apparently there's a slightly different cut of the movie in Japan that features really? m- more gore in the scene where uh, the main kid gets shot by police. Oh yeah, that is I forgot that is that is a goddamn dark uh, moment in the ending. I now I want to track that down. But um, in, uh, I think someone put some that clip on YouTube or something. But like it, it shows like it, and and you traditionally you're not supposed to show this when a kid gets killed in a movie. But like they have like huge like squibs like coming out of the kid's back and stuff like. It's, <laughs> Like it's very um, questionable in in what is a film, you know, that among other things has a rap sequence set at a McDonald's. Well, it's a dance sequence. Uh, yeah, but um, which actually is something I wanted to talk about because that was one noticeable, one really noticeable thing in the movie uh, or in the Mystery Science Theater three thousand version is that they cut most of that dance sequence. They only show the very tail end. Uh, and I'm trying because th- th- what was missing since I had seen all these movies before, what was missing from the movies was very glaring to me, and I have to wonder exactly why certain things were cut. I can only presume the reason they cut the most of the dance sequence is that Ronald McDonald features very heavily in it, so maybe um. there's like a likeness rights issue. Although that being said, we do still see a scene of him in the movie, mm-hmm. and you know he's. 
he's embedded in the movie. If they've got the rights to show the movie, that, that I would assume is part and parcel with getting the rights to show Ronald McDonald. But then again, maybe they were just playing it safe. Um, or then again, maybe they just didn't want to turn an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000 into a five-minute commercial for McDonald's by default. Uh, which that's that is something I can understand. Other than Mac and Me, what what uh, films in this gauntlet um, package stood out? Uh, I had seen Killer Fish. I have seen Ator the Fighting Eagle, which is interesting in Mystery Science Theater 3000 because early on in the original series run, they did the movie Cave Dwellers. Cave Dwellers is the sequel to Ator the Fighting Eagle. Hmm. Uh, I had seen uh, I had seen uh, Pacific Rim, which is an awful movie that Mystery Science Theater 3000 really could not save. Um, I, I have I to think... correct you; it's not Pacific Rim. That was the oh no, Atlantic Rim. Atlantic, Atlantic Rim. Yeah, Atlantic the, Rim the, the, <laughs> the the asylum knockoff of Pacific Rim. Yeah. They could not save it. I really think they should... There's something truly god-awful about modern mockbuster bad movies. I really, really hope that MST3K does not do any more. I, th- I think I think they, those just to be, need to be written off. There's really nothing redeemable about those movies. And that's like... It's like Manos, The Hands of Fate. They could barely save Manos, The Hands of Fate because there's nothing redeemable about that movie. I, I guess except the gung-ho spirit of the guy who made it, despite a lack of, uh, a lack of ability. Um, but yeah, the, on, the only uh, one that I had not seen was Lords of the Deep, although I was familiar with the reputation of Lords of the Deep. Um, and with Mystery Science Theater, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's some episodes of that that would never be released on DVD. Uh, yeah, there are a handful of episodes that the the rights to the films are kind of tied up. I mean, there, there's essentially a handful of episodes that got made almost by accident. There, They did uh, two Godzilla movies, Godzilla vs. Megalon and Godzilla vs. the Sea Serpent. Uh, and... They they sort of got those because they were available in a really cheap syndication package, just as kind of like grandfathered in from like the seventies when those those movies were brought over to America. Godzilla is too much of an international icon. It would be too expensive for them to put a Godzilla episode of Mystery Science Theater on DVD. And that's back when they were a just sort of like a locally syndicated show in the Midwest. Uh, no, that was on Comedy no? Central. Really? Hmm. Yeah, that was that was like second or third How about that? season. I'm sorry, I, I think I cut you off. Did you uh, have a no, question? No, 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 I, I, was, I was done. Yeah, so so yeah, so th- those are episodes uh, that if you're going to see it all, you're going to have to find a bootleg or, or some brave uh, patriotic soul will have put it up on YouTube. Um there's also like, uh, although in the KTMA days they did do a uh, they did do a Gary Anderson production, a movie cut together from Stingray episodes, uh, which I don't think the estate of Gary Anderson would let happen again. <laughs> so that's quite odd. Well, it'll be interesting to see what they do um, for the rest of this uh, second season. Yeah, and, and there's some other notable things I think about this season that I would like to talk about, but we're not an MST3K uh, podcast. <laughs> Yeah, correct. And um, yeah, if you if you like uh, the new MST3K, you you might enjoy um, Joe Dante's website. Trailer from Hell has a podcast oh, called called, and they have a podcast called The Movie That Made Me. And um, Jonah Ray is that it? The new host on that show on Mystery Science Theater. Is that the guy's name? 
Oh yeah, Jonah, Jonah Ray. Jonah Ray was a guest on an episode, and Joe Dante goes in this fascinating rant about how he thinks Mystery Science Theater is disrespectful to film and, huh. and all this stuff, and has given rise to like the worst of like online film culture, and it's um, and hearing Jonah Ray kind of tap dance a response to that is fascinating. Well, I guess it depends on how you look at it, because like the the best episodes of Mystery Science Theater three thousand, they're having fun with the movie. They're not like mocking the movie. And mm-hmm. uh, something I learned from an interview with Frank Conniff is that um, early in Mystery Science Theater three thousand's run, uh, I think it was that this became official show policy in the second season, and they pretty much held to it. Was okay. It's like okay, you're only allowed to make one joke about how the movie is bad. Yeah, yeah, and I think and and that's and that's like true. Like it doesn't like pointing out that the movie we know the movie's bad. Pointing out that it's bad is not a joke and is not funny and just makes me regret you know turning on the TV. And although, but yeah, I mean, but film is even even like the worst film tends to be a very personal work for someone involved, whether it's a director, a writer, a producer, an effects person, and and so. Because it's a because it's a personal work for somebody, an attack on the film is going to seem like a personal attack. So that's that's one of the reasons why I like that MST3K tends to have fun with the movie rather than at the movie's expense. That being said, when it's your movie, uh, that can be a hard thing to to, res- to to feel or to resonate with. I'm not going to name names, but I'm I am friends with the daughter of a guy who made a movie that ended up on a later season of Mystery Science Theater 3000. And he really took it personally. Mm. Uh, he took it personally and, to the best of my knowledge, tried to figure out who had who had the rights to some of his movies so to, to take steps to make sure that no other movies he did would ever be on the show. And to the best of my, and, and he's and that's been successful. Uh, none of the person's other movies have been on the show. I, again, I don't want to say who this person is because I don't want any, anyone to get harassed. Not that I think that's likely, you know. But <laughs> but but like I I can respect that. I I I like what Mystery Science Theater three thousand did with the movie, but I I can respect the I can respect the the filmmaker's wishes. It's uh, Charles Band, isn't it? No, no, it's not. <laughs> uh, it's just it's I, again. I'm not. I'm not going to say. But okay. you know, and I like. And frankly, I do like their work. I mean, they made some ambitious B movies with some interesting premises. Although that right. being said, I you know I'm torn because I kind of would like to see what MST3K could do with some of this guy's other other movies. But you know, it is what it is. And speaking along those lines, um, I did hear that they renewed Joe Bob Briggs to do a few more of those marathons for Shutter. Yeah, no word yet whether it's going to become a complete series, but they're going to make it kind of a regular. It seems like right now quarterly thing. So I need to see the the I need to see the newest one. I love that Halloween horror one. I need to see the his Thanksgiving one, which which went live on Shutter the same time as the Turkey Day episodes of MST3K. So there's some direct competition uh, there. Yeah, but I like both. Frankly, I like them both for different reasons. I cut a. a- brief bit of something weird. Uh, it was on Amazon Prime. It was some... I think she's done this a few times, but it was like an Elvira series where um, she has kind of like stupid jokes about the size of her breasts and then they show the a movie and then randomly in the movie it's almost like pop-up videos. You'll like green screen, fly on screen, make a stupid bad joke and then fly off. 
Yeah, yeah, that's well, that, that's the. Uh, uh, I think that that's just the current incarnation of Elvira's movie Macabre. Now that I think yeah, about yeah, it, yeah, and uh, but it was almost all um, Charles Band films, interestingly enough. So yeah, had, like, some sometimes she gets connected with a particular rights holder, and that that means that certain very similar or linked films show up. Because in a certain way, I, I think you know, having your film on something like that, even if it's mocking it, uh, it's still free advertising, and those people might go, oh, I might want to buy some more of these Ginger Dead movies or, or Evil Bong Part 7 or whatever. I, I've seen Ginger Dead Man versus Evil Bong. Uh, it's not good, but it is entertaining in a weird way, although it probably is best appreciated while under the influence. I, uh, a place I used to work at, we had a, a masseuse that would come in one, once a month to give complimentary massages. It was wow. one of the few nice things about the job. And I, I became um, chummy with the masseuse and she revealed to me that uh, her one of their friends has been a writer on several Charles Band pictures. Oh, cool! And I was trying to weasel my way into that action, but she outright refused. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> what <laughs> could have been, man? I, I know. I'm like, yes, I, I would. I would write Evil Bond Eight for like five hundred dollars. Like, sure. <laughs> like, I don't care. That's fine. But I would so, too. I yeah. would too. Oh. Uh, Say la vie. I, I'm, yeah, I, you know, I'm definitely getting my movies out of storage, so I should be able to add them to our library soon. And there, I, I do have uh, Puppet Master, I think, at least one through ten. Oh, cool. So those, those might be fun to do in the show sometime. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot to work with when, you come, when it comes to Charles Band. Uh, a lot of stock footage, too, so. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, so let's, uh, do you have a scene picked out for the movie for us to do? Oh, actually, uh, I, I can in just a moment. Uh, let me just, okay. uh, sorry, this is the, the one, the one pre-search failure. Uh, all right. So I, as uh, you're doing this, I'll mention what we'll be covering on the show next. Um, oh yes. So, so dear listeners, uh, originally we were going to cover the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street after New Nightmare, but... Because we've been a bit late with the shows, uh, we're going to punt on that and do that Nightmare remake uh, a bit later in the process. Uh, so instead, um, you know, starting next episode, we will be taking off our look at the Pirates of the Caribbean series. And oh, uh, yeah. with, with Johnny Depp, it's um, you know Disney has done starting in the in the '90s. They did they're experimenting doing movies based on theme park rides and. Uh, most of them didn't take off and at the time they said well Pirates of the Caribbean is going to be the last one and of course that's the one that becomes a huge hit and they've uh, over the course of um, <laughs> it's not maybe 15 years or something they've done like five movies these sort of and, and famously the pirate genre is a genre that um, typically doesn't do well it's expensive yeah, we, we you're all filming on water Cutthroat Island uh, yeah Cutthroat Island they say uh Pirate movies and westerns are can be a hard sell. Well, well, those are two those are two genres that are always being pronounced dead. That's true. It's uh, like with computer games. Every two years or so, you get an essay why the uh, why the graphic adventure game is dead. Huh. So, all right. Where well, we have the scene, what part do you want to play, and you want to explain what the scene is? 
Okay, so the scene, this this is, uh, about, I think, about halfway through the film. Uh, this is uh, Heather Loggenkamp uh, talking to Robert England, where she's trying to explain that she thinks the, that Freddy Krueger is real and, and might be after her. All right. And who do you want to play? I, I would love to do Robert England, if you don't mind. Okay, so I'll be Heather Loggenkamp. And we'll begin the scene. Actually, it's been giving me Freddy nightmares. Wait a second. Now let me get this straight. You're having nightmares about Freddy, as in me. No, it isn't you. He's scarier. He's darker, more evil. How did you know, Mister England? Yeah. Okay, well, so. that's something. That's something I love. I love the line reading that England gives for darker, more yeah. evil. Because like it's it sounds like a perfect trailer line, quite frankly. Uh-huh. He's and he's having real fun in this movie. I think he really likes getting to play a scene in a Nightmare on Elm Street movie without makeup. But it all, um, but it also seems like, which is I'm sure is a treat for him. But like the other thing I like about it is that it's it's almost like, it's like it's like a note from a producer, darker, edgier. Yeah, um, I would be remiss if I did not note that on the show in the sitcom The Goldbergs, which is set in the '80s, you Freddie England put on the Freddie uh, Krueger nightmare. Makeup, um, the Freddy Krueger makeup. For a oh yeah, I've heard so. they've been getting a lot of people from the era, like on the show in character. Because like, didn't they have Rick Moranis as Darth Hel- Dark Helmet in voice only? But yes, um, uh. and they 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 had Weird Al Yankovic, uh, complete with a mustache and the, <laughs> the, the Afro look. Um, they had yeah, they've. They, they, I'm way behind on that show, but I enjoy the the Goldbergs. I, I just think the the problem is, and this is a problem with any sitcom, you, you have kids that, you know, because they're smaller, the stuff is funnier, but then it, when the kids kind of move from middle school to high school, I think it the, the humor doesn't, it seems a bit more forced. Hmm. Well, I guess it's in part, it's because high school is not a particularly funny uh, part of your life. Yeah. Right. In my case, it was, it was my worst. Uh, so I'm glad to be as far away from it as possible. For me, it was middle school, but yeah, I mean that that whole time. There's a lot of uh, oh, emotional and physical trauma one goes through. Oh yeah, for one reason or another. Uh, it's um, it's not like Saved by the Bell, which like I thought it would be. Uh, <laughs> we we were neither so excited or so scared. There was not a. Uh, a Jewish kid with an afro pretending to be RoboCop running through the halls. Who invented his own robot. Yeah. Um, God, Saved by the Bell was a dumb show. I could... I could t- I, hey, Saved by the Bell tangent? Uh, sure. Okay, so I saw the premiere of Saved by the Bell when it was, uh, I believe, aired as just one episode as part of the TGIF block. It's the episode where one of the characters breaks their leg and there's a dance contest, so they invent a dance where you jump up and down on one leg called the pogo, and so they win the dance contest. Mm. And I believe I was the exact age that that show was targeted for. And I remember watching it and not laughing at a single thing, and when it was over... And this this has kind of informed a lot of the way I interact with media to this day. When it was over, I realized... This show is pandering to me. This yeah. is what some adult in a suit thinks I will watch. And they don't care whether I want to or not. And like that that's when that and 
the fir- my first episode of Mad Magazine about six months later is kind of what in- what informed my the way I would interact with media from that day forward. It was the first time I realized television was pandering to me. And in fact, a uh, little known fact: Saved by the Bell is a spinoff of the show Good Morning Miss Bliss. Yeah, it was a, it was it was the I guess for lack of a better term like reboot remake or retooling from the Haley Mills vehicle Good Morning Miss Bliss who the, t- the title character is the only character that didn't make the transition. Right. And the only thing and, that didn't work in the Haley Mills show was Haley Mills. And eventually got uh, some sequel series as uh, Saved by the Bell the college years and Saved by the Bell the new class. Most of which ran longer than the original series. And it's like Star Trek a, in that way. Yeah, and there was an infamous um, made-for-VH1, or no, like, sorry, Lifetime movie called The Unauthorized Saved by the Bell Story. Okay, so do you know about the Saved by the Bell series that didn't get made? No. Well, do you remember in the late 2000s when inexplicably they started showing Saved by the Bell as part of Adult Swim? Uh, I mean, it's to get the nostalgic 90s stuff. No, it was not. No? No, it was not. That was a strategy to build momentum for a show that had been pitched to Cartoon Network for Adult Swim that they weren't sure... They Basically, that was them trying to prime the pump to see if there might be interest in it. But uh, one of the creators at Adult Swim had pitched a live-action Adult Swim series called Saved by the Bell, The Has-Been Years. And the premise was, it's the save but it's all the Save by the Bell cast. They reunite. They play the same character who have aged in real time and have not changed at all, but have to deal with the fact that they're adults now in the real world. And it's just about them failing to be adults because they have these horrible traits from their childhood that they just won't let go of. That's not a terrible idea. And supposedly part of the reason it didn't get made is that uh, is that Dustin Diamond uh, Dustin Diamond uh, which apparently this has been a habit with a lot of his appearances, <laughs> he was sort of a prima donna and he was asking for too much money more than the network wanted to put into the show. Huh. Um, yeah, no, he wrote a memoir that then he proceeded to sort of like stab the ghostwriter in the back and try to disclaim any responsibility for it. Well, yeah, he he wrote a like sort of a scandalous tell-all about what it was like to make that show, yeah. but it contains some stuff that could be considered libelous. Yeah, he oh, threw his uh, yeah, ghostwriter sure. under the bus. Um, and uh, I'll give Say by the Bell this. I think it had a good theme song. Okay, I, I can give it that in kind of a retro '50s cool sort of way. I can I can uh, give it that. Yeah, uh, my sister was obsessed with this show, and before that, she was obsessed with Hey Dude. Uh, I'm sure it had. I'm sure it had nothing to do with the attractive uh, male members of the cast. The, oh, Hey Hey Dude was the show that would come on that would let me know that it was time to stop watching Nickelodeon. Yeah, it was no Pete and Pete. That's for damn sure. Nothing is Pete and Pete, and, and no. That's, in fact, that's I'm kicking myself for they they screened a few episodes of Pete and Pete and did a QA with. Uh, they flew Pete and Pete over to Portland, Oregon, for this one-time cool um, event, and it was ex- and it was extremely hard to get tickets for because that show was really, I think, ahead of its time with the sense of humor and um, one other one on Nickelodeon Jag. <laughs> I yeah, 
I'm, I'm trying to think. I didn't really watch that much live action stuff in Nickelodeon, except for Nick at Night. I found was very informative. I got to watch, you know, the Looney Tune cartoons they'd show before, and then I started to appreciate older sitcoms like uh, Dick Van Dyke and Donna Reed. Uh, yeah, Donna Reed. Um, and they had a Dobie sitcom Gillis. called Hey Honey, I'm Home, which I thought was a pretty interesting idea. Oh yeah, that's a show that jumped networks because that also that Did started okay. like the first six episodes were aired as part of TGIF. Then it got brought back for uh, Nick at Night. Yeah, I had, I had a concept that um, was a little bit like the film Pleasantville. Yeah, as I recall, the the, pre- the premise was when you're watching a when you're watching a sitcom, those are like real people who live in the television. But when a sitcom is no longer on the air, uh, all the characters get relocated to the real world where they just kind of live normal lives until the show re-enters syndication, in which case they go back to the television. So, yeah, it was about this guy, this family moves in next door, and it is the family from his favorite old sitcom, which is kind of half I Love Lucy, half Donna Reed. Um, and so they all act like nineteen chipper 1950s people, which is where a lot of the humor comes from, and they deal with things in a very chipper, television-friendly 1950s way. But one of the running gags is they had this machine that could make their house black and white, called or color, uh, called the Turnerizer. Oh, that's a very old reference. I mean, a very Ted Turner of its time. Where and that was I, something... I swear we're going to end this episode soon, listeners. But yeah, ah, we're. Ted Turner in the 1930s. Or, what the fuck am I talking about? Ted Turner, <laughs> Ted Turner had access to a wide library of films for his uh, cable channels TBS and TNT, and he decided to um, modernize them for a, a, a modern audience by using uh, the computer by uh, having a staff use computers to colorize them. And this was very very controversial at the time. And uh, uh, it didn't uh, look too good. And, such as Roger Ebert railed against this practice. I mean, it's it's sort of a strange thing because it was it was an awful practice and 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 yet I think his heart was in the right place because he he was afraid if the audience saw something black and white on TV they would just change the channel so the idea was I want people to see and appreciate these films it needs to be color so that they'll stay on the channel just long enough to realize that they're watching something good. So like so like it's it's well in it's well intended, but I, he was much more successful when he started uh, Turner Classic Movies, which which shows all the films in black and white as they were originally intended. Of course, and um, full disclosure, my my sister is a marketing executive for TBS. Uh, really? Not that, yeah, not that Turner has anything to do with um, those channels anymore. Well, we're but, not wetting our beak. Uh, yeah, but um, but they were. Um, you mentioned Turner Classic Movies, and I, I uh, was with my, my grandma, who uh, recently turned 90 uh, over the Thanksgiving break. Cool, congratulations. And, uh, yeah, no, she, she's full of vim and vigor, and um, not not surprisingly, she enjoys you know the programming on Turner Classic Movies, and she was obsessed with talking about, they have a wine club uh, that <laughs> yeah. they, they charge you for a month, and it's like wine you pair with like a Cary Grant movie or something, and she was like hemming and hawing if she should get it or not, because um, she's only sort of entered the world of wine appreciation, which is quite its own thing. Uh-huh. And uh, my sister was, was, I mean, was thinking maybe she should get that as a gift for her, which would be pretty amusing, but um, I, I, I just think that that's quite clever, and like maybe more companies should do that. <laughs> the Netflix Wine Club. Or, or the Joe Bob Briggs Beer Club, right? Okay, I mean, no, that, like, yeah, get the yeah. right microbrews involved. 
that have, would be pretty have, cool. Have you know limited run custom micro brews maybe once a year for that club? Huh. I wonder. It's a thought. Doing okay. <laughs> Um, this has been a and uh, we'll have the we'll have the sequel cast uh, se- the sequel qua- cast uh, crack files you can get. And what comes in those? A crack, but but we pair it with our episodes. Did you say a crack? Crack, yes, crack cocaine. Uh, I, see. I I do not endorse the use of crack cocaine, but if such a club existed, I would endorse that club. Sounds like someone that takes crack cocaine would say. Um, I don't have a problem. You have a problem. <laughs> What's that white stuff on your nose? That is uh, powdered donuts. I eat powdered donuts. Sometimes I go alone in the bathroom with a mirror to eat a lot of powdered donuts. Speaking of going alone in the bathroom with a mirror, you can uh, follow us on Twitter. At, that's a terrible <laughs> segue. At, at SequelCast2. Uh, follow me on Twitter at MATWBT. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. And the next, uh, we'll start kicking off a new series starting next episode. We'll be looking at the all five films of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. So that should take us into January 2019. Uh, That'll, that will be the tale of Captain Jack Sparrow. Uh, we might even make a recommendation of a rum to enjoy while watching those films. <laughs> we'll pair it with something. I think we're running away with the episode. Um, okay, so... Uh, for <laughs> well, this, two, this has been Sequel Cast. Uh, for Sequel Cast 2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying... Darker. More evil. Darker. More evil.